this professor who used to always say, I mean, almost an answer to any question, Eric, it's all about power. It's all about control. He said it all the time. And I don't know that I believed him, but I'm beginning to wonder more and more if he's right about that. So when we arrive on the scene in Matthew 4, Jesus doesn't look too good. He's been out in the desert for 40 days. His skin's baked by the sun. His lips are parched. And the devil's been dragging him all over the place, tempting him. And then we get to verse 8 of Matthew 4, and we find this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all their splendor. And he said, all this I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to Jesus. Uh, so the recent hurricanes, fires, floods, shootings that have been all over the front pages, I think if they remind us of one thing, if you were to, if you were to boil them down, if they remind us of one thing, they remind us that we are not in control, right? <clears throat> but the truth is we get those reminders all the time. So just, just the other day I was sitting in staff meeting and my phone starts buzzing in my pocket and I let it go to voicemail and then immediately it starts buzzing again. And so I look and it's Lindsay, my wife calling. And so since Dr. Langhofer is doing a marriage thing today, I wanna to impress you with how much I know about marriage. <clears throat> and, and I know this, if she calls twice, you better answer, right? <clears throat> so I step out of the staff meeting and I answer and uh, pick up the phone and Lindsay says, a car just ran into our house. And I said, uh, what? <clears throat> she said, a car just ran into our house. A car? Yes. Our house? Yes. What part of this aren't you getting? <clears throat> I'm like, the same house that a tree fell on a couple of years ago? She's like, yeah, that's the one. A car just ran into our house. So uh, do you want me to come home? <clears throat> okay, I'm coming home, right? <clears throat> so... I step back into staff meeting and I'm like, hey, everybody, I've got to go. A car just ran into our house, which is the best excuse anybody's given for missing one of our staff meetings. <laughs> and I go home and, and sure enough, there's a car and it has hit our house, right? And um, I thought, you know, we had avoided that by buying a house that wasn't built like in the middle of the street, but apparently <laughs> we didn't. Guy just decided he wanted to, to park his car in our house. In fact, he took out a power line uh, as, he, as he came through the yard, hit that pole. And so all of East Memphis lost power for about eight hours. That was us. You have, you have us to thank for that. Lindsay's home, minding her own business, put the kids down for a nap and boom, car hits our house. So everything turned out all right. Everybody was safe. In fact, we got enough insurance money from that to cut down this tree that was thinking about falling on our house. I could <laughs> see it in that tree's eyes. We cut that thing down. Worked out all right. But that, you know, just the randomness of that, sitting in staff meeting, getting that call, a car is just running into our house. I mean, it reminded me, we are not in control. We're not in control. But we crave control, don't we? I mean, I mean we know theoretically. Yeah, I'm not in control. But the truth is we really want control. 
Which brings us to our topic for today. So in this front page series, the idea is that every fall, Chris and I take a couple weeks to talk about some of the things going on in the world and, and how we think through those as Christians. And so aside from the recent disasters, which are covering the news pages, social media, the news um, coverage on TV, one of the major things going on in the news are protests, specifically the take a knee NFL protests. So the Bible actually has a lot to say about race and government and respect and even some about protest. In fact, that's one of the things I cover in my Race in the Cross class. We're going to be talking about that this week. I was thinking about those things, but I was really captivated in this moment I was watching ESPN the other day. And on ESPN, there's these two anchors, news anchors, and they are debating this protest. Right? And, and debate is a nice word for it because it's hardly a debate. They're basically just shouting at each other. Right? You got one who's upset about what the players are doing, one who's upset about what the president is saying in response, and the two of them are just shouting each other about what they think should happen with this protest. And as I watched that coverage, I just, I just had this epiphany that, that what they thought, what they say, doesn't matter at all. Because even though they both think they should have control, they don't, right? Neither of them have any control at all over what comes next with these protests. So despite everything they said, this was all I heard, right? I don't like this. I can't control this. So I'm mad about this, right? Have you ever seen that play out as you've watched the news or anything? I mean, doesn't that summarize so much? It doesn't summarize marriage though right? You've never felt like that in marriage. I know I haven't. Lindsay surely hasn't. She has no reason to be mad. <laughs> when I talk to couples about marriage, and I do want to tie this to marriage today in light of what's going on. When I talk to couples about marriage, one of the things I like to say is, you know, marriage is, is the greatest gift. It's such a blessing, but it is also the best way to learn how selfish you are. And then when you have kids, you learn how selfish you still are, even though you thought you were over all that. Right? I mean, so when we talk about selfishness, what we're talking about is control or power. So selfishness is my desire to control everything for my benefit. But what happens when you're married, and if you're married, you know this, is that you've learned to compromise. And so you have to, to surrender control. So you eat where she wants to eat. You watch what he wants to watch. And let's just talk about the thermostat for a second, right? Like, how many of you married somebody who likes at the exact same temperature as you? Anybody in here? I see like three hands and next week we're going to preach about lying, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I, w I made it through a whole winter in college with roommates and we never turned on the heater once. It got down to seven degrees. You could see your breath in my room, but our bill was so low. <laughs> you know, but Lindsay, if it gets down to 80 degrees outside, she's like, let's turn on the heat, baby. Let's turn on the heat. You know, if my baby's toes freeze, it's on you, Eric. <laughs> Right? And so we're turning on the, you know, the thermostat, right? You learn, to, you learn to compromise. And then you have kids. And you know what your kid thinks about compromise? They don't. You know, they, they don't care if you want to watch the football game. They want to watch Mickey Mouse, you know. They don't care if you're at a, a nice place like Target. If you don't buy them that Paw Patrol toy, they throw this big fit, right? And then you spank them and they're like, I don't know this man. He's beating me. Someone help. <laughs> you know, you... 
You get married, you have kids, and you think control. I remember those days, right? I remember those days. So Paul understood that control is this really dangerous temptation, like the temptation Jesus is facing there on the mountain. And he understood it's a temptation in marriage, even though he wasn't married. Apparently he had married friends and he kind of saw this in their lives. So he says in Ephesians 5, this passage you really know, which is about control, this is what he says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's talking to couples. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord, for husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish. And he goes on. Okay, so what's really, what Paul's saying here is actually pretty radical. And I know that we've heard it a lot. So, so that kind of jarring effect of the text maybe doesn't hit us as much. But back in the time that Paul wrote this, it was not uncommon to find writings kind of in common literature about how wives need to submit to their husbands. What's really radical here is that he's saying submit to one another, right? Out of reverence for Christ. That he's using the same word to describe the way husbands submit to their wives. He's saying marriage is really about compromise, right? Both of you surrendering to the other one for the sake of the gospel. And if you kind of push that to its logical end, what he's saying there is that there's something about control that is contrary to the gospel. Now you might think, well, okay, I understand that in that context, but what about situations that really frustrate me or really wound me? Or what about non-Christians in the world? I mean, surely Christians should try at times to control them. And so in, in 1 Peter, also in the context of marriage, we see something about this. This is 1 Peter 3, where he says, Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, so they're not Christians, if they don't believe the word, they may be won over, how? Without words, by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Paul says a really similar thing in 1 Corinthians 7 and kind of this describing the mystery of God. He says that an unbelieving wife can sanctify her, or sorry, a believing wife can sanctify her unbelieving husband and vice versa. A believing husband could sanctify his unbelieving wife. And both of these passages, when dealing with non-believers or dealing with something or someone who's frustrating us or hurting us, kind of push against the idea that what you need to do is to take and assert your control, right? Instead, when we think, you know, like our wife or our husband can only get better if I kind of take control and, and push them to get, the, get them where I want them, right? If getting your spouse better is not a good project, but that happens, right? You kind of feel like if I take this control, I can dictate who they are. I can make the them better, I can make the world better. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Peter's saying, no, no, no. Things get better when you surrender control. Do you think that's true? Uh, let's think about it on the micro and macro level. So big picture and little picture. I think that's a really important thing for Christians to consider. Things get better when I surrender control. Because let's, let's go back to the protest. 
as we see with those protests, I bet in here, okay, there are those for whom that protest really speaks to your heart. You think it is a valid thing. It is raising good, legitimate concerns. And there are those who are very opposed to it. You're hurt by it. You're offended. You find it disrespectful. You know, maybe you've been a servant of this country in some way, and it, and it really hurts you. There's probably both of those in this room. <clears throat> so what we're saying is that for both of us, that protest touches a nerve, presses on this nerve. And what happens with this event and many other events is our frustration over our inability to relieve that pressure on the nerve. We can't control it. We just feel ourselves getting worked up and worked up. And we wish we had more control over what's going to happen next with this protest or, or any other thing. And I think in this, Christians are a lot like the rest of the world. You know, we see the things that play out on the front page of the paper and we want control over them. I mean, we wouldn't use that language if we were talking to someone about it, but if we were to kind of examine our interior selves, what we'd find is, yeah, I think I could do a better job of this, right? Like if somebody would just come and ask my opinion, this could all get fixed. Like I, I should just have control over this. And so we post our thoughts on social media. We talk to our friends about it. We vote certain ways. We lobby. We send money to the causes we care about. All those things may be very good in time, but what I'm asking you is to stop and examine why do I do those things? Is it because I'm obsessed with controlling outcomes? Is that the way the world gets better? I don't know. You know, Paul and Peter seem to say it's not the way a marriage gets better. But I'd probably grant you that there have been times in the history of the world where good things have only happened because the right people took control. Right? We've only kind of gotten this far because at times the right people were in control making the right decisions. That's probably true. But I did stumble upon this book recently called The Patient Ferment. The Patient Ferment. And it's kind of got me thinking about some, I don't have it worked out, so let me just kind of throw it at you, see if it sticks. The patient ferment. All right. Ferment, I'm just talking about the way that juice becomes wine. And the adjective there, patient, kind of betrays that that's a slow process. It takes time. And the patient ferment is a, is a history book about the early church. And the guy's point who writes the book is really simple. He says, the church didn't grow, the early church didn't grow because they had influence. In fact, they had no influence. You know, Rome was hostile to the early church. I think a lot of people would argue our world's looking more and more like that. Maybe so. He says that's not the way the early church grew, and the early church grew like wildfire in those first centuries. You know, from a couple dozen that Paul's ministering to, to hundreds, and then thousands, quickly. And he says the way that that happened was not the influence or control of the early church on the rest of the world, but because Christians lived out the Jesus way of life quietly in their context and their neighbors would see them and see that there was something different about their life and they would ask, what is it? He says, that's how we grew. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? All right, that's the, that's the big picture. Things don't get better when I desire control. Let's talk about the micro level, the small picture. And let's go back to that original response we see to the protest or any, any number of things in the news, right? You've felt this way. I have. I get it. I don't like this. I can't control this. So I'm mad about this. 
whatever this is. It could be a person, an event, a thing. So aside from the fact that our efforts to control kind of prevent us from having a good dialogue or actually hearing somebody, you can also see here that our efforts to control are creating a spiritual crisis for us. And here's what I mean by that. Um, so you've, you've heard these terms before, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What are those things? Fruit of the Spirit. Spirit. Okay, so if you kind of back into that, what you would say is, if there's something in my life that is causing me to lose one or more of those things, joy, kindness, goodness, self-control, okay, then it is a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual danger. And what happens when I don't like something, can't control something, I get mad about something, is that I have thereby lost my joy in Christ. And potentially also my self-control and my kindness towards others, that occasionally happens too. So it's a spiritual problem. I'm a part of this group of ministers uh, that get together twice a year, and we've learned this term in that group, and some of you, some of you have heard this term before, and it's been really helpful to me. It's not a biblical term, but I think it, it describes this biblical principle. And the term is differentiation. Differentiation. Have you heard that term before? It kind of looks like this behind me, something like that. I'm not sure if the spelling's exactly right there. Differentiation. Uh, the idea with differentiation is kind of betrayed in the word. Okay, I'm different from everything going on around me. Or in other words, kind of the events going on around me, the things I see in the news, the drama going on in my family doesn't dictate who I am in Christ. Right? That, that I am a child of God, beloved by the Father, and that is separate and apart from all these things around me. Those things can't dictate that. I'm differentiated. So I like to give an example of differentiation. I, I think differentiation looks like this. You can get a critical email at 945 at night and still go to sleep at 10. All right. Have any of you ever gotten that email late at night and you see who it's from, you see what the subject line is, and you're like, I shouldn't open this. But you open it and then you can't sleep. Okay, because suddenly someone is robbing your joy in Christ. And truly what's robbing your joy in that moment is not that person, but that you can't control that person or can't control what they've said or how they feel. And so um, I'm not differentiated, so don't send me an email tonight at 945. Like I'm, I'm on my way there, I'm not there yet. So how do you get differentiated? And I think that's maybe a good question and what I wanna end with. I'm not an expert on that, like I said. But I'm convinced as I kind of watch these events in the world unfold, as I kind of dig deeper into the story of Jesus, what Paul has to say to these married couples, what I'm convinced is that the beginning of differentiation or the first step in retaining your joy in Christ, despite what goes on in the world, okay, is to accept the things you cannot control and surrender those things to God. So go back to that temptation of Jesus. The devil takes Jesus to the top of this mountain and offers him all the control in the world. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Or in other words, there's only one who's worthy of control. There's only one. And the temptation would be to think, no, you are too. 
I am too. So the beginning of differentiation, the beginning of following in the Jesus way, the beginning of becoming more Christ-like is to surrender control of what we shouldn't be in control of in the first place. And I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this. I've got a um, buddy who is a, a minister and he's got his own history with addiction. And so he has spent a lot of time with groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and other groups like that. And he's working on this project, which is a really fascinating project about what do groups like that, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA groups and other groups like them have to teach the church? Okay, what do they have to teach us? And he says the best thing that those groups have to teach the church is the serenity prayer. You know this prayer, right? Most of you know it, right? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, okay? Courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And that's what I wanna challenge you with today as you go home from here and you pick up that Sunday morning paper that's in the drive, right? As you get on social media, as you drive home, or wait until you are not driving anymore. (laughs) But you get home and you start scrolling through and it's depressing and you find yourself just frustrated because there's all these things going on that you can't, can't control. I think it's this opportunity to look inside and say, why does that thing frustrate me? And if it frustrates me because I'm not in control of it, take it to the Father, lift it up to Him, and surrender it. That's what I challenge you with. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, maybe you want to be like Nicholas Merrick today and you'd like to be baptized, I'd love to receive you down here. I'll be down front. Or if you'd like prayer, we've got shepherds who are also in the back who'd love to pray with you. Will you stand with me as our praise team joins us and we continue to sing? Come you sinners, poor and needy, and bruised and broken.